U.S. Erickson immigration attorneys Emily Collin and Xavier Francis discussed the second of the two recently enacted USCIS full discretion policy changes. Immigration officers are now given the authority to completely deny a visa applicant due to a lack of satisfactory evidence determining their application. Previously, this infraction would be subject to a revision that would ultimately meet the officer's needs. Now, any application that does not live up to the standards of the officer may be subject to a complete denial. Emily and Xavier give their best practices to navigate through this increasingly difficult climate. Come join us Beyond Borders. So USCIS issued two policy memos, um, one on June 28th and the other on July 13th. I call it a one-two punch because it sort of delivers um, twofold challenges to stakeholders, right? So the first memo, as many know, on June 28th, it, it allows officers, adjudicating officers to issue a notice to appear, which is a notice that commences removal proceedings against a beneficiary or applicant whenever that person's petition is denied and, and the person falls out, falls out of status. Now, last week, or I think July, July 13th, another memo was released that gives officers the full discretion to deny petitions on first review for a lack of sufficient evidence. So Emily, um, what's your take on this? Well, my take on this is that it's going to make the immigration landscape a little bit more challenging. Mm -hmm. um, as we've already been seeing since January 2017, it definitely throws a bit of a monkey wrench into things, specifically because since the policy will only take effect on September 11th, 2018, we do not yet know exactly how broad of a brush the officers are going to use. I'll just give a little bit of background on sure. the current policy so that way we can really help the listeners understand how the current policy will, will sure. affect folks. So right now, in general, USCIS adjudication officers will issue what's called a request for evidence, mm -hmm. or in more common parlance, an RFE, mm -hmm. or a notice of intent to deny, or annoyed, in order to provide the petitioner or the beneficiary of the underlying application for immigration benefits with a chance to provide USCIS with some supplemental information that either should have been included in the original application or is now required because there's been, say, a, a long time period that's passed. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the context of H-1B petitions, if a petition was filed in January but uh, was not actually looked at by the officer until September, normally an, an officer would issue an RFE asking for September and August and July's pay stubs, mm -hmm. which, of course, were not provided in the submission that happened in January because we don't have time machines yet. Mm -hmm. So that's really how USCIS treats what they see as deficiencies in applications right now. They give the petitioner applicant a, a chance to provide whatever USCIS thinks they actually need. Um, now, under this new policy that you have just spoken of, we see that that's likely going to change. So can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Under the new policy, USCIS officers will now have the full discretion to deny cases um, for a lack of sufficient evidence. The agency briefly touched on what a lack of sufficient evidence means. It, it essentially means you know, omitting a, an official document or other form of evidence that establishes um, 
eligibility for an immigration benefit. So, for example, an, an official document would be an LCA for an H-1B or um, a support letter or some other form of document. Now, in a, in a memo, it was, I found it interesting that the agency said that the, the, the rationale for the new, pal- the, the new policy was to, the, was to disqualify frivolous petitions, right? Many are concerned that the policy might affect petitions that are, um, that are submitted with sufficient evidence or that have sufficient merit. And, and why do I say that? is because, well, last year, USCIS issued about 85,000 RFEs, according to a report by Thomson Reuters. Um, and that's about a 45% increase since 2016. So I think it's a major concern within the immigration community. I completely agree, especially with regards to the types of petitions that have a less objective standard. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, what immediately comes to mind is the O-1 or EB-1 petitions for extraordinary ability. Extraordinary ability is not defined in the regulations with regards to quantitative merit. So, for example, you can show somebody is extraordinary because they have several publications. The word several does not carry with it an actual numerical value. Mm. So as a as a practitioner who files these types of petitions, I would be concerned that a particular USCIS officer might think that the submission of 100 publications is not sufficient, and rather it has to be 105. Mm-hmm. And so instead of issuing a request for evidence, they would just outright deny, deny. that type yeah. of application. Um, absolutely. I think I think you made a very valid point. And I think it also um, corresponds with uh, the, the officer's continued obligation to um, adjudicate petitions according to the preponderance of the evidence standard. So I know this is a term of art that many might not be familiar with, but what this essentially means is that even if the officer has some degree of doubt, if the petitioner submits relevant, probative, and credible evidence to demonstrate that a claim for immigration benefits is more likely than not true, then the petitioner has satisfied their burden. And, and, and this has been mandated by the Supreme Court since 1987. Um, so it, the preponderance standard is pretty much saying if there's more than a 50% chance that evidence su- supports a claim for an Im- immigration benefit, then it's likely that the, the petitioner has satisfied that burden. Now, you know, how does one reconcile that with the new full discretion standard? It seems like the, the full discretion standard isn't necessarily full because officers must still observe this standard. And I think as I think a lot of stakeholders and practitioners must sort of emphasize this in the initial filings. It might mean that we have to write longer support letters. It might mean that, you know, we have to produce more documents up front in the initial filings to emphasize this standard. The other possible issue with the standard, and you bring up an, an excellent point, is that practitioners and the immigration um, community needs to carry both the July 13th RFE memo, but then also the June 28th Mm -hmm. NTA memo in the back of our minds. Because just hearkening back to our previous podcast, wherein we discussed the new NTA policy that empowers USCIS officers to basically initiate the commencement of removal proceedings Mm -hmm. if the denial by USCIS of an application for immigration benefits would result in the in the visa holder no longer having legal status in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's not 
only the the annoyance and the extra time and the extra trees that are mm-hmm. going to be quote unquote wasted with having to to cope with the mm-hmm. voluminous documents we're not going to have to provide to USCIS with initial filings, but it's also the very real world consequences that could follow from such an aggressive discretionary standard given to USCIS officers in the wake of the July 13th memo. I'm thinking about a case, a situation where an F1 student is seeking to change status to H1B and the petition gets denied. At the same time, he falls out of status because his OPT expires or his I-94 expires. So, I mean, under the new policy, if the officer believes that the person doesn't have, the beneficiary doesn't have, uh, his, his petition doesn't have sufficient evidence, um, he may deny it. And then he may also follow up with an NTA to put the F1 students in, in removal proceedings. So it's definitely a one-two strike and a lot of people are concerned about that happening in the future, especially as we prepare for the next cap season. We did just want to briefly discuss the fact that a denial issued by a U.S. officer is not final. Mm-hmm. Um, it's final with regards to that specific step in the adjudicatory process. But thankfully, decisions by USCIS officers are subject to both administrative and judicial review. Mm-hmm. So there are going to be at least a couple of avenues that are open to the employer and to the visa holder with regards to getting what may be an incorrect decision overturned. It's just that in the interim, as opposed to maybe staying in the U.S. and, and waiting for for that decision, mm-hmm. EIG attorneys and staff may instead recommend that the particular visa holder return to their country of origin in order to sort of wait out the final decision. Absolutely. And we could also probably just resubmit the petition as well. Some petitions that can be resubmitted. Exactly yeah. right. There's no, there's an excellent point. There's no prohibition on simply refiling an application, mm-hmm. possibly utilizing the strategy of maybe filing it by premium processing if it was not previously done by premium processing, mm-hmm. since those adjudication officers are actually reachable by um, an email address that is monitored quite frequently mm-hmm. instead of having to resort to the 1 800 um, USCIS phone number. Decisions by USCIS, they're, they're not final, right? So um, final agency decisions can be reviewed. Typically, um, for employment-based visas, administrative appeals office would be the body that would hear a decision, a denial by USCIS. A petitioner can appeal a decision, right? Now, the AAO has the authority, the administrative appeals office, um, to set aside a decision by USCIS and provide proper guidance. If an appeal, if a denial is affirmed by the, by the Administrative Appeals Office, the petitioner can then take the, take the subsequent step of seeking judicial review um, under the Administrative Procedure Act. So courts, district courts can know, can potentially hear a case. The question is, is it worth the time and money um, to invest um, in, in a single case. And I think this has to be determined on a case-by-case basis because the petitioner should strongly believe that his or her case, his or her petition, um, has sufficient merit um, if seeking um, ad, you know, review by the AAO and judicial review um, if it gets to that level. Um, so 
I think that's um, I think that's an avenue. That's a that's a, a an avenue of legal recourse. But we I don't think we can ex- I don't think there should be a high expectation to get to that level for many stakeholders. The reason why the premium processing could be utilized to a greater degree in the wake of the memo is because if the extension petition, for example, is filed right at about five months before the person's status is set to expire and is unfortunately and inappropriately denied, that foreign national still has authorization to be in the U.S. and work pursuant to the underlying um, previously filed H-1B or L-1 petition. It would not kick in the issuance of a notice to appear. Instead, it would require the employer to file another extension petition. Now, the silver lining to to that horribly dark cloud is that in the denial decision, USCIS will be providing the reasons why it denied the petition, whether it be something a little bit more substantive or whether it be something sort of silly, like they don't feel that they had the requisite amount of pay stubs. The petitioner will be able to correct the deficiencies that the USCIS officer previously found in the other petition. That's a that's a great point. Also, want to touch on um, something else because um, USCIS announced some a couple of form updates on July 16. They announced updates to the I-140, the G-28, and I-765, and these form updates will go into effect on. September 17th. Now, I mean, the timing timing seems a little bit suspicious because September 17th is six days after September 11th, which is a day when um, the RFE memo goes into effect. So we have to be sort of careful when submitting petitions on or after September 17th because it seems like USCIS might expect people to submit outdated G28s, outdated I-140s, and then deny them on first review, um, which seems a little bit malicious if you ask me. <laughs> it's, uh, it definitely sort of lays the groundwork for USCIS officers to abuse the power that that they possess pursuant to the regulations. Um, I, I also just wanted to point out just a couple of two final things for listeners as well. And that's that the appeal process that Xavier um, kindly went over does not work to extend the foreign national status in the United States. The filing of the appeal would instead work to kickstart the legal channels that are necessary to hopefully reverse the denial of the petition, but it, it does not do anything to affect the person's immigration status in the United States. And then um, also, um, on a sort of lighter note, the issuance of a notice to appear pursuant to the June 28th memorandum does not strip the AAO or the the um, federal court from jurisdiction to review the denials of USCIS petitions. A In the vast majority of cases, the foreign national does not have to be in the United States while judicial review is being sought. So the issuance of an NTA, by and large, does not negate that right to seek administrative review. Of course, just in the interest of full disclosure, 
Every case, as always, has to be evaluated upon its very own specific circumstances and merits. But just in general, um, I just wanted listeners to be aware that the issuance of the NTA does not generally disturb the right to continue seeking those other administrative remedies that Xavier mentioned. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Emily. Um, and I think as stakeholders continue, as we continue to navigate this current immigration climate, we just have to remain vigilant, adaptable, and we have to be willing to explore all avenues of legal recourse that are available to us. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law and our Instagram underscore EIG law to join in the conversation. Thank you for listening. See you next time. And just one final note to let listeners know that uh, Xavier has also published an article about this very topic in Bloomberg. So please do check that out for a wealth of additional supplemental information on the topic. Thank you, Emily.